Amen. Well, Blake is actually going to hang out uh, with me on the stage for just a second. And you may not have realized this, but Blake and his wife, Kim, just got back from leading a team of people from Frontline to go down and spend some time for the last like 10 days or something like that. Oh, eight. Eight, eight yeah. or nine days. Um, it, with our ministry partner, Ebenezer Discipleship Training Center in Haiti. And so uh, those folks are actually going to come on up here and join us up here on the stage. And their names are on the screen behind us. And um, so as they're, as they're joining us, I'll kind of move out of the way here. I just want to say to you guys, um, I said this first service, but thank you so much for the way that you served and the way that um, you represented Frontline so well, uh, just with our ministry partner and with going down and taking time out of your own lives and your own schedule to be there in Haiti and so I'd ask if Blake would just share uh, for a couple minutes just about whatever was significant about the trip for you. Cool, cool. Well, we have an awesome team here, and we just uh, really enjoyed spending some time down in Haiti. Let me tell you, Haiti in June is hot, okay, real quick. We said to each other, surely God's people are open to the gospel in February, a lot better in Haiti than they are in June. But So we're looking at that possibly in the future. But anyway, we had an awesome time together. Uh, what struck me about the trip is actually when we got onto the airplane, uh, in Miami to fly to Haiti. And when you looked around the airplane, you're walking down the aisle there, 98% of the people on the airplane going from Miami to Haiti were Caucasian Americans going to minister down into Haiti. In fact, if you, if you uh, talk to people in Haiti, uh, aside from taxes, tourism, as far as missionaries, is their, is their number one source of revenue, their number two source of revenue in Haiti. And so that struck me kind of funny, like, we're going down there. And most of the people we talked to in the airplane, person I sat next to, they said, well, what are you doing down there? And uh, I kind of shared what I was doing, and I asked what they're doing. And they said, well, we're going to go work at an orphanage, or we're going to go help at a clinic, or we're going to go work in a school. And uh, that's all well and good. That's awesome that people are doing that. But let me just tell you something. They don't need us down there to work in their schools to work in their orphanages, to work in their clinics. The Haitian people are more than capable of doing that. The number one thing that the Haitian people need is they need the good news of gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what they need. And so a lot of times people are coming down there and we're taking jobs away, we're taking things away from where Haitian people could actually do the work for themselves. We as a group went down, and it's one of the greatest things I love about partnering with Ebenezer Discipleship Training, is we went down there to encourage the pastors, to encourage the leaders of the Haitian church so that they in turn can go out and spread the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because when that good news touches people's lives, the schools and the orphanages and the clinics, they start getting taken care of a lot easier because people's hearts are changed. And so we had the opportunity to do that and go down there and encourage. And, you know, I got back and people said to me, it says, you know, you know, what did you do? And wouldn't it have been easier just to, like, you know, send them a message, a text message, or write them a letter or something like that, or give them a phone call and encourage them that way? Um, let me tell you what, if somebody is ill and sick, you know, those are, those are great things, but in your own life, you know, when you go visit somebody, when you spend some time with them and you encourage them that way, even more they are lifted up. So we had the privilege of doing that. We feel really blessed to go back. And it didn't just go one way. I want you to know that, okay? We didn't just go down there to bless them. They blessed us a ton. I, I almost feel uh, a little weird getting coming back here saying, you know, I feel like I was discipled more than actually I ended up discipling somebody. And so um, what a great trip, right? We had an awesome time. Yeah. So. That's great. And in that spirit, that's one of the reasons we're changing things up a, a little bit here. If you've been a part of Frontline in the past, you know that typically what we do is we bring a team like this up on the stage the week before they go down 
uh, to be on the mission field in Haiti. And we pray over them as we send them out to the mission field. And so this, uh, this time we said we want to change our thinking a little bit on that because of what you just said. Uh, oftentimes it's us who actually are impacted and changed the most. And so I would love if we could just do a prayer of commissioning on you guys because uh, you came back Friday night, Saturday morning, some, somewhere, somewhere around in there. So tomorrow uh, you guys are going to go back to life as usual, but it's never going to be normal or usual again for you. You're going to, you have new eyes to see with. Um, there are things that you're going to experience. You're going to go back into the workplace. You're going to go back into relationships that you have. People are going to ask you about your experience. And so um, I would love to just pray a prayer of commissioning over you as you take the, the transformative experience you've had and you live forward in your life with that. And so could we just bow for a moment and just pray over them? Lord, I just thank you uh, for these brothers and sisters who have said yes to taking some time out of their life uh, to go and be with our brothers and sisters in Haiti. And God, I thank you for the encouragement that happened. I thank you for the, the gospel uh, going forth in the church in Haiti. And we thank you, God, that the church is not just something here in America in this moment, but the church is, uh, gone, has gone on for centuries, and it's a global church that finds its fulfillment in you, Jesus. Uh, and so we thank you for that, and we just pray right now. Uh, for these as they go back to work tomorrow, as they go back to their families, as they get asked the question, so what happened or what did you do while you were in Haiti? Would you give them words to express and to uh, communicate what it is that you did in their lives and what it is that you're continuing to do in the church globally? Uh, would you allow them to be the church and to be your hands and feet in our world even right now as they, as they head on into life? And God, would you just be with the Haitian pastors? Would you, would you be with the church and Ebenezer and Light of Hope and all the ministries that we have had that privilege of connecting with um, as a church over this last year? And uh, God, would you just use us to be your hands and your feet all together as the church? We love you. And it's in Jesus' name, everybody said. Amen. Amen. Awesome. Thanks. Well, thank you guys again for the way you served, and I'll let them head back to their seat. Can we just give them a hand um, for, for being willing to do that, for being willing to serve? Awesome. Um, well, as Blake mentioned earlier in the service, today we are trying something new, and uh, what we're going to be doing is uh, we are actually broadcasting right now Facebook Live this service, and we're going we're gonna to try that today, and we're going to do that throughout the summer. And so I just want to welcome all of you who are joining us on Facebook Live right now. We haven't really had like an online platform on our website. And so we just said, hey, how about we do this as a way to help people stay connected to our church and to what uh, God is doing, what we're talking about on Sunday mornings over the summer. And so I hope that you'll take advantage of that even as you travel. And um, so we'll see how it goes. Maybe we'll continue it even after the summer. We'll, but we're going to be trying something new. And so today is the first day to do that. So that's exciting. Um, so we should probably have a sermon now, right? Don't you think? Um, so I'd love to continue on this series we've been working our way through for the last few weeks called Shepherds and Kings. And we've been tracing the story of David, the most prolific king in the Old Testament. And so if you've been paying attention to the news at all this past year, if you haven't been asleep, there is a news story that has just dominated headlines for the better part of this last year, maybe starting in the early fall and continuing on. And it's this. It's the Me Too story, if we get there. Um, you, you probably have heard this. You've seen it. Um, you, you've watched it as it's unfolded. What, what's happening is women are feeling empowered to speak out about their experiences in the workplace with sexual misconduct or sexual abuse. And here's what we're learning about the world we live in. What we're learning is that way too often men who are in power and positions of power and influence in the workplace use their power in order to get sex. 
Now, I would say it's also true that oftentimes in the workplace, there are women who will use sex in order to get power. That happens too. But what's happening is with this Me Too movement, as, as women are feeling like they're beginning to step up and it's beginning to be something that we feel like we can actually say this and we can share, and they're sharing about their, their experiences with sexual misconduct. And if you've been paying attention, you've watched uh, men who are in power just falling left and right all over this past year in many different fields, including in the church. Maybe you didn't realize that, but this Me Too movement has actually impacted the church as well and church leaders. And so today, as we think about the, the Me Too movement, today we come to the story in the life of David, of David and Bathsheba and their sexual encounter. It's found in 2 Samuel chapter 11, and it's a story of adultery and pregnancy and affair and then a cover-up for that and murder. It's the story that has all, this, all these elements to it. And here's the thing, if, and you've probably read this story if you grew up in the church many, many times. I've read this story multiple times over the last few decades as I, since I've been a Christian. And I thought I understood everything about this story. And this was just going to be kind of one of those sermons. Okay, we say it and everybody already kind of knows how it goes. And for me, coming to this story with the backdrop of the Me Too movement and what's been happening in our country, there was something that jumped out at me as I began to prepare for this sermon and began to prepare for this message that I had never seen before in the story of David and Bathsheba and their sexual encounter. And what jumped off the page to me, what I saw this time as I read it, was I realized that this story, when you read it, and we'll read it in a moment, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, it is told almost completely from the perspective of King David. It's told through his eyes only. In other words, Bathsheba's heart, her motives, her perspective really aren't brought up. She's really not discussed in it. One commentator said the reason for that is because we're supposed to, th to focus on David and David's actions here, not on anyone else's. But, but we're kind of left to wonder when we read the story of David and Bathsheba, what was Bathsheba's heart here? What was her intention? What was her state of mind? What, was she a willing participant in the affair? Was she a willing participant in the cover-up of her pregnancy and the demise of her husband? Or would Bathsheba be a victim would she be a person in our world today who would raise her hand and say, hey, I have a Me Too story? And so we're, we, we really don't know. It doesn't, the Bible doesn't tell us what her perspective was on the story. But here is what is absolutely unmistakably clear, and it really jumped out to me as I read this story again. This story we're about to encounter this morning about King David is a story about a man who is in a position of power and privilege who unmistakably uses his power and his position in order to get sex. And then he uses that same power to then go on this big cover-up of it. And so in many ways, David in this story is no different than Matt Lauer or Harvey Weinstein or uh, Charlie Rose or any of the other men we've seen fall who are in power in different fields over the course of this past year. And so with that being said, are you ready to jump into the story? It got super quiet in here first service when I said all that, and people were just like, I don't know if I'm ready for this. You need to be ready for this. Uh, so with that being said, it happened like this. Here we go. This is, uh, the, this is how chapter 11 starts out. It says, in the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites, but David stayed behind in Jerusalem. And so the first thing the writer of, of the story wants us to understand is that in this moment, David is not where he's supposed to be. 
Okay, he's, Joab, the commander of the army, is out fighting the Ammonites. That's where David should be. He should be out with the men of the army fighting, but he stayed behind in the city of David. He stayed behind in Jerusalem. But it's not just that David is where he shouldn't be, like, like that he put himself in a vulnerable position. It's actually that something has changed with David. The humble servant leader that we met in the previous chapters and that we studied over the last few weeks is eroding away. The humble king, or the humble you know, up-and-coming king who refused to take the life of King Saul when he had, I won't touch the Lord's anointed, that guy has sort of disappeared. The guy who fought Goliath with a sling, he's, he's not here in this chapter. Something is different about David. The David we're meeting in this chapter is King David, the triumphant and powerful king. He's in the palace. He's got an army of people at his disposal. And success... And victory has changed David. He, he no longer even sees the position of privilege that he's in. He doesn't have any capacity in this story for self-critique. He's lost touch with any sense of accountability. He is the man. He is large. He is in charge. And we see how this story unfolds from there. Go ahead to that next one. It says, Late one afternoon, after his midday rest... David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. Now, what happens when we read this story, oftentimes we think to ourselves, well, how could that happen? How could you be walking on the roof of your house and see somebody taking a bath? And so what you need to understand about the way houses were constructed at this time in the city of David is that it would not be uncommon at all for someone to go up on the roof of their house and in fact, that might have been the most private place in the house to actually take a bath. And so women would often, they would go up in order to fulfill the ceremonial purification rites that were required by them of the Old Testament law. Jewish women would go up oftentimes on the roof of their house to take a bath. And so there would be like, uh, like a privacy wall around the, the, the top of the roof. And so somebody couldn't look over and see you. The only way someone could see you if you were taking a bath on the roof of your house is if they were on the roof of a higher house, like, say, the roof of a palace, a position of power, a position of influence and privilege. And so the reason I tell you to ask is this. Oftentimes we read this story, and I'll admit I've read this story this way many times in the past. I've even heard sermons given from this perspective. A lot of times we read the story and we read, David looked down and saw Bathsheba taking a bath, and we think to ourselves, that floozy... Are you kidding me? This temptress, like she's out there just flaunting. Like, what do you mean? She's out in public view taking a bath, stripping down naked. What is she doing? And we read this, and we read that she's doing something immodest or inappropriate. And what I want you to see here is Bathsheba was doing nothing immodest here. She was doing nothing inappropriate. She was doing what women did in this culture in this time. It was David who was doing something inappropriate. He's on the roof, and it was generally understood. You don't look down. That's just not what you do. He's on the roof back in Jerusalem while his men are at war, and he's looking down, and he sees this woman taking a bath. You see what's going on here. This is, I only order those magazines so I can read the articles. This is, I had no idea that was going to pop up when I typed that into the Google search. I don't know. That's what this is. In this moment, David is not where he should be. He's not doing what he should be doing. He's the one doing something inappropriate, not Bathsheba. The story keeps going from there. If you want to go to the next part, takes it a second there. He sent someone to find out who she was. This is the kind of power and influence 
David has. He sends someone to find out who she was, and he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, David knew Uriah the Hittite. He had relationship with, with Uriah. The reason we know this is because the text tells us earlier that Uriah was actually one of David's 30 mighty men. So David had these 30 what he called mighty men. They were like his most trusted soldiers in his army. These were the guys that he would send on the biggest projects, the biggest military missions. And so he trusted them. They trusted him. They knew each other. And so when David hears, oh, it's Uriah's wife, he knows exactly who Uriah is. He, ha he has a relationship with him. And he goes on from there. Then David sent messengers to get her. And when she came to the palace, he slept with her. It doesn't give any indication that she had some kind of a choice. Now, she had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period, which is probably what she was doing on the roof with the bath. Then she returned home. Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. Now, uh, the word here in the original Hebrew is actually, whoopsie. <laughs> so David here has messed up. There's no question about it. He has uh, breached his own character. He's passed through accountability boundaries, and he's, this is a major turning point, or it's a major crossroads for David in his story. Uh, and so we're all watching. We're going, okay, so what's David going to do here in this moment? Now, the right thing for him to do, of course, is to reach out to Uriah, the person he has relationship with, and say, man, this happened. I messed up, and just confess, come clean about it, and just deal with whatever consequences come from it. We know that like, that's what he should do. But instead, what we're going to watch is David decides to cover it up. And he begins this elaborate process of covering it up. Go ahead to the next uh, slide if you could. Then David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent him to David. When Uriah arrived, David asked him how Joab and the army were getting along and how the war was progressing. Then he told Uriah, go on home and relax. I guess that's what the kids call it nowadays. David even sent a gift to Uriah after he had left the palace, but Uriah did not go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. When David heard that Uriah had not gone home, he summoned him and asked, what's the matter? Why didn't you go home last night after being away for so long? Uriah replied, the ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents, and Joab and my master's men are camping in the open fields. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would never do such a thing. Now, what the writer's trying to do here in this moment is trying to contrast for us the integrity of Uriah and the absolute lack of integrity on David's part here. And so Uriah recognizes, man, how could my men are out here fighting. My brothers in arms are out there fighting. How could I go home and indulge myself? How could I go home and sleep with my wife in, in this moment? And so, you know, what David is, of course, hoping is going to happen is Uriah is going to go home, sleep with his wife, and then, oh, she's pregnant. And David go, oh, hey, congratulations. That's great. Must be your baby. I'm off the hook. But Uriah has too much integrity. And, and what it contrasts for us in this moment is we're supposed to be looking at David and going, yeah, David. How, how could you go home and sleep with his wife while your men are out there on the battlefield? He has more integrity than David in this moment. And so again, crossroads. Okay, David, you tried. It's time to fess up. It's time to come clean now. But he doesn't do it. David just doubles down 
and goes another layer deeper in the attempt to cover it up. And I won't read it all to you. I'll just walk you through it. The text says what David does next is he tries, he gets Uriah super drunk. I mean, just gets him absolutely hammered and then sends him home thinking, okay, now he's going to go sleep with his wife. The guy still doesn't do it. He sleeps with the palace guard at the city gate. He refuses to go home to his wife. He has that much integrity. And so David doubles down again. And this time what David does to cover it up is he sends a letter to Joab, who's the commander of the army, and he sends it with Uriah. So Uriah actually takes this letter and he brings it to Joab. And if you were watching this on a movie scene, we'd watch Uriah with this letter and we'd be screaming at the TV, just open the letter, Uriah, just read the letter. But again, he has so much integrity, he doesn't do that. He takes the letter, he hands it to Joab. And the letter, the message from David says... Joab, what I want you to do is I want you to put Uriah at the front line of the battle. And when, we, when you go into the battle, when the Ammonites turn to attack, I want you to pull all the men back, and I want you to leave Uriah alone on the battlefield so that he gets killed. And Joab, again, you see over and over again the power and the privilege that David has. Joab, the commander of the army, doesn't question. David sends people to find ba- to get Bathsheba. He sends Joab off on this mission to kill Uriah. Nobody questions the king. Nobody pushes back, and Joab does exactly that. And in this moment, what the writer is trying to get us to see is that David has actually sunk lower in this moment than King Saul ever did. David, in this moment, what he did to Uriah is exactly what King Saul tried to do to David a few chapters ago. Do you remember when uh, King Saul tried to send David on this mission to collect 200 Philistine foreskins? you remember that? In that moment, what Saul was doing, he was sending David on this mission that he fully believed David would get killed on this mission doing. The only difference between King Saul and David in this moment is that David is successful. He sends Uriah into a battle, and he actually does get him killed, and he's complicit in Uriah's murder. And so what we're supposed to see in this moment is King Saul lost the throne. He lost the kingdom. David in this moment has actually sunk lower than Saul. He's actually gone a click even beyond what Saul did on the dial. This is a horrible moment. When Uriah is killed, David basically does a shotgun wedding with Bathsheba. Everybody assumes, oh, she got pregnant on the wedding night. That's great. And we all just say, that's great. Everything moves forward and it's all good. And what the writer is wanting us to see, what we're supposed to be understanding from this story, if you go ahead to the next click, you can't cover up when only God can wash clean. You can't cover up something that only God can wash clean. Over and over and over again in this story, David just keeps doubling down and covering it up and covering it up. We try to cover stuff up too, don't we? I mean, in many ways, David's story is just kind of a reflection of the original story of human beings in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, the first two human beings in the garden, they sin, they disobey God, and their first impulse, the first thing they do is they sew fig leaves together to cover their nakedness and to hide from God. They cover it up. David is doing the same thing, and we do the same thing today. We have all these elaborate ways to cover it up. We don't send people to the front line of battle to, you know, to die. We don't necessarily have that kind of power. We just erase our search history. Or we download apps on our phone to hide the affair from our spouse. Yes, people actually do that. Or if we find ourselves in the situation that David was in, there's an unwanted pregnancy, we have the option in our world today to just get an abortion. Problem solved. It's covered up. Let's move on with life. And what the, what the writer's trying to get us to see is that cover-ups just 
don't work. You can't cover up something that only God can wash clean. What's interesting about this story is I mentioned to you that Bathsheba's perspective is missing in this story, but there's another perspective that's missing in the story in 2 2 Samuel chapter 11. It's interesting because you don't see the name of the Lord God mentioned at all, all the way through 2 Samuel chapter 11. And that's unusual because if you look at the other chapters in that book going up, God is mentioned every chapter. Again and again and again, you see God's name. But you get to chapter 11 in this event, and it's just about David. It's just about what he's doing and his perspective. Until you get to the very last sentence of the very last verse of chapter 11, and finally, God enters the story. And this is what it said. It says, but the Lord was displeased with what David had done. Do you think? Yeah. I think God was displeased. But it's saying God, it wasn't confused by the cover-up. God sees what happened, and God is displeased with what David had done. And so what's going to happen in the next chapter is we're going to get to see here, this is what, this is is how God handles David in the midst of his sin, in the midst of his brokenness, in the midst of his cover-up. And what I want you to see as we look at this uh, next chapter, as we look at these next words, is uh, this is not just a picture of how God deals with David in the midst of his sin and his brokenness, but what we see here is this is a picture of how God actually deals with us when we are in the midst of our sin, when we are in the midst of our cover-ups and our brokenness. This is how God actually deals with us. And so what you need to know is uh, this whole event happens in the year 980 B.C. And so chapter 11, it's, uh, you're, it's April when Uriah is killed. And so now chapter 12 begins. It's December of the same year. Bathsheba is nine months pregnant. She's about to give birth. David assumes it's all covered up. It's all good. He's kind of moved on. And it says this. So the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to tell David this story. So Nathan the prophet is going to be the first person to confront David. And he goes to David and he says this story. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb he had bought. He raised that little lamb and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day, a guest arrived at the home of the rich man. But instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guest. David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole and for having no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are that man. And what I want you to see here in this moment is God could have chosen so many different ways to respond here in this moment. God knows what's going on. God could have just taken David out of power, just taken the kingdom away from him. He did it to Saul. I mean, it's obvious he could do that. He could have just struck David down dead. He could have done any number of things. What God chooses to do in this moment is he chooses to send Nathan the prophet to go into David's presence and to confront him with this story. And what Nathan's doing here in this moment with this story is it's a mirror moment. He's holding up a mirror to David and he's saying, David, this is what you look like right now. You are that man. Look at what you've become. And he's he's holding up this mirror in an attempt to say, you are so far from what you are supposed to be. You are so far away from what God created you to be. You have more in you than this, David. You're better than this. And this moment 
the way Nathan confronts David, this, this moment is actually an act of grace. That's what it is. It's painful. It's ugly. David hears this story, and what happens is, as he gets angry at the outrage, at the injustice of what this guy did, what's happening is it's actually awakening inside of David that, that king, that righteous king that David is supposed to be. It awakens it inside of him, and he gets angry like he should, and that's the moment that Nathan says, look, it's you. That's you. And in this moment of pure grace, David, for the first time, the man of power and influence and privilege sees what's, what's really happening in his life. And he's confronted with a true picture of himself. You are that man, and that's, what, that's what's happening. Nathan is simply calling David back to his true self. Here's what I want you to see in this, and the way that God deals with us in our sin, the way that God deals with David. This absolutely is a story about David's horrible sin and horrible failure. It is that. It is also a story about a God who just keeps pursuing David, even in the midst of his sin, even in the midst of his brokenness. It's about a God who just keeps pursuing, who keeps coming after David. Psalm 23 is my favorite psalm in the whole Bible. It was written by King David. It's become extremely meaningful to me in my life, especially over the last few years. And, and the way that Psalm 23 ends, maybe the most powerful statement in the whole thing, at the very end, David says, as he looks back on his own life, he says, surely your goodness and your mercy are pursuing me all the days of my life. Do you hear that? That was David's perspective. As he looked back on this event and all the events of his life, he said, man, the way I see God, God his, surely his goodness and his mercy are pursuing me all the days of my life. He's like just relentless. It's like he just keeps wearing me down with his goodness and mercy over and over again. He doesn't say, surely your judgment and your condemnation are pursuing me all the days of my life. Like no matter what I do, I try to get away. The other shoe is always about to drop. I'm always waiting for God to pay me back for what I did wrong. I can't get away from his judgment and his condemnation. No. The way David viewed all this was, surely your goodness and your mercy, no matter what I do, no matter how much I mess up, you just keep coming after me. You keep pursuing me all the days of my life. If you're taking notes, maybe uh, just write down this statement. Legalism is telling people what to do. It's pointing out their faults. It's saying, you need to do this, you need to do that, you need to correct these things in your life. But grace is awakening people to who they really are. Grace is this ability to call and to speak to the person that's inside the sinner, inside the broken person, and hold up a mirror and say, it's an ugly picture right now, you look terrible. But you were created for more. There is more. God has more for you. There is more in you than you even think you have in you. And, and grace is awakening people to who they really are. Even in the New Testament, the word repent it means to, you're going this way. You, you've kind of become this version of yourself. It means to turn around and come back and become, come back to God and, and let him uh, call, you out of the per, call you out the person that you were called to be from the foundation of time. It's this grace is awakening people to who they really are. And that in this moment, that's exactly what Nathan is doing. When Jesus comes, and Jesus comes through the line of King David, we're introduced to Jesus in the New Testament through King David's line. When Jesus comes, Jesus does exactly what Nathan does. He goes around telling these kinds of stories, exactly the same kind of story Nathan told. They're called parables. 
And as Jesus goes around and tells these stories, that's what he's doing. He's holding up a mirror to people and he's showing them the ugliness of what they've become. But the point of the stories over and over again is to awaken the person inside of them that they're supposed to be. Jesus, as he tells these stories, he's trying to awaken the deadbeat dad to become the father that he was called to be. He, he calls and he, and he begins to try to awaken the child, the dearly loved son or a daughter that's inside the prodigal or the, the sheep that's wandered off and left the 99. It's God pursuing and continuing to say, this is what you look like. This is who you were called to be. You have more in you than this. You're better than this. Come back to me. Let me call out of you the person you were, you were called to be, that you were designed to be. Um, I used to read this story, and I would come to it, and I would think to myself, when I would read the David and Bathsheba story, what an idiot. I would literally read and just think, like, how could he do that? How could David get to this point where he was that blind to himself and to what he was doing? Uh, I don't read it that way anymore. Uh, there was a year here at Frontline, several years ago, where I preached what I would consider maybe the best marriage series I have ever preached in the history of my time at this church. It was an awesome marriage series. During that year, I counseled people who were going through a rough time in their marriage. I told them what they should be doing in their marriage. I, and, I, and during this whole year while I was preaching these things and I was saying these things and telling these people these things, I was slowly walking down the path with a relationship that undoubtedly would have become a, an affair. What a joke. I look back on that year. I look back on myself during that year. I was just so, what a joke. And I am so grateful to this day for a couple of Nathans in this church that God sent, and they, they still go to this church. But during that time, they had the guts to confront me, and they just held up a mirror to me and just said, look, you are that man, Brian. Look at what you're doing. Look at, look at what's happening. You are better than this. There is more in you than this. Don't you see what you're doing? And they just confronted me, and at the time, I hated them for it. I despised what they were doing, but what happened is over a period of time and with a wife that I gave extended more grace to me than I will ever deserve and who believed in me, even when there was no good reason for her to believe in me, I was turned and, and things didn't go the direction they could have gone. And so I'm here to tell you today, you cannot cover it up. Trust me, you can't. It doesn't work to cover it up, but God really, really can wash it clean. He really can wash it clean. And he can really call out of you the person you're intended to be. These last couple years of my marriage have been the best years of marriage. And my wife would tell you the same. He really can do that. He really can wash it clean. You may not feel like it right now, but God is pursuing you right now. His goodness and his mercy are pursuing you. You may not like it. You may not enjoy the process. But his goodness and his mercy are what are pursuing you and will continue to pursue you. So I want to talk to three different people here as we, as we wrap up today. First of all, I want to talk to those of you who, when you read this story, maybe you're like me and you immediately identify with David. And maybe just like Nathan held up this story to David as a mirror and David saw himself in it, maybe this story, we're looking at David and Bathsheba this morning, is doing the same thing to you. Maybe it's holding up this mirror and you're looking at this and you're going, oh, that's me. That's me. I, I'm David. I, I can understand his capacity for self-delusion because I understand my own capacity for self-delusion. And so if that's you, I, I would just ask you this question. Is there anything you're trying to cover up that only God can wash clean? It's not going to work. 
Do you need this morning to allow this to be a mirror moment for you where you say, God, I'm turning around, I'm confessing, I'm repenting, and I'm coming back to you. I want you to awaken in me the person that I've been called to be. And I know I can't get there without your grace in my life, without your work by your Holy Spirit in me. The other person I want to talk to in this room is maybe you're a Nathan. Maybe you identify with Nathan. Maybe there's a person in your life who is walking down a path and they don't see it. Maybe it's your spouse. And, or maybe it's a child. Maybe, it's, maybe you've got a child that's walking this wayward path and they're an adult child maybe even and they're at the point where they can make their own decisions. You're watching them do this and it's just breaking your heart. And so what you're doing is you're telling them what to do and you're pointing out their faults and you're saying, this is what you need to do. This is what you need to do. This is what good thinking would be. What would it look like for you instead to try to awaken them to the person that God is calling them to be? What would, it, what would it look like for you to hold, I mean, you hold up the mirror and you say, it looks ugly right now, but then begin to speak to the person that God has called them to be from the foundations of time and say, but I see this in you. I, I, I see this potential in you. And you are better than this. You have more in you than this. What would it look like for you to begin to just speak to that person out of that kind of spirit, out of that kind of attitude? If that's you, you've heard this statement probably before. Hurt people hurt people, but healthy people want to help people. When, as Nathan confronts David in this moment, he, he, what's, the reason he wants David to turn so badly is because David hurt people like David. They just hurt people, and that's this whole story of it. David just continues to hurt more and more people because he's hurt. But healthy people, when we are awakened by God's grace to the person that we're called to be, when we receive salvation, when we repent of our sin and we turn back to God, and he begins to call out the person we are intended to be, healthy people, as they get healthy, they actually want to help people. If David can turn around and become healthy again here and become the person, the king that God had called him to be, the whole kingdom wins. Everybody wins. Hurt people hurt people, but healthy people want to help people. Then lastly, maybe you read the story. I don't think we've ever really talked much directly about this. Maybe the person you identify with immediately is Bathsheba. Maybe you've had some experience in your life where you've been a victim. Maybe you'd say, man, I, I have a me too story. I could share that. And maybe you've kept quiet or you haven't shared it because in your mind, sharing it would actually put you in an even more vulnerable position. And what I want to say to you is, his goodness and his mercy are pursuing you too. And he doesn't want you to just carry that shame the rest of your life. Sometimes church, for some reason, feels like a place where we can't talk about that. Or that's, I want Frontline to be the kind of place where we can share about that, we can talk about that, and people can find freedom in Jesus because that's what he came to do is to set us free. That's what he came to do is to call the person out of us that we, we were intended to be and not to just sort of live in the midst of shame and brokenness for sin either that we've done or that's been done to us. And so I'll wrap up the story this way. The band's going to come out and um, uh, join me here. But this is how the story ends. It says, Then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Now what's interesting about that statement is uh, David really had sinned against a whole bunch of other people too, right? It wasn't just the Lord. He sinned against Bathsheba, Uriah, uh, you know, the, Joab, the commander of the army. Really the whole nation of Israel with the lies and the cover-up is who he, he sinned against. But what I want you to see is it begins with, with the Lord first. Any kind of real change in our lives has to begin with our heart and our posture toward God. And this is the moment that David turns. This is the, the, the hinge point moment where healing can begin because he turns back and he says, I've sinned against the Lord. And he owns it with God first.
And this is the moment that David, David begins to become the king God called him to be. And he doesn't lose the kingdom, but God continues to bring Jesus eventually through King David. And this is the moment where that begins to happen. Now, here's what I want you to hear loud and clear. There are still consequences for David's actions. There are still, there's still fallout. And I think it's enough to stop the story right here for today. But next week, we're going to talk about those consequences. And you're going to see just because David experiences grace, just because he experiences uh, forgiveness and healing begins in his life, doesn't mean that there aren't consequences to the decisions and the fallout in the relationships that he's living in. And we're going to talk next week about how God meets us even in that too. And so, but for today, where we land, I'd love, um, if we could, maybe just bow your heads with me. And in a moment, we're going to sing this song uh, that we have sung. It's become kind of a favorite here. It's called Reckless Love, and it's just about the mercy and the goodness of God that just keeps pursuing us, keeps chasing after us, just relentlessly. So maybe you're here today. If you're someone that would just say, man, this, this story this morning is a mirror moment for me. And maybe you just need to say, God, I've sinned. I've, I've allowed myself to be deluded. I've tried to cover it up. I've tried to cover it up, and I need you to wash it clean. Just raise your hand in this place. That's you today. Yes, praise God. Keep your hand up. I just want to, I want to pray for you right now before we sing. God, right now in this place, as people are just confessing, as they're turning back to you, we just thank you for the truth that this morning is not a moment of judgment and condemnation. Even though there are consequences for our sin, well, Lord, this is a moment this morning of your goodness and your mercy pursuing us, calling out of us. So God, I pray that you would awaken those who just raised their hands. Would you awaken? Would you speak to the person that's inside of them, that you call them and design them to be from the foundations of time, who Jesus died on the cross for, who rose from the grave for to give them a new life? And would you begin to just call out of them the person, the son, the, son, the daughter, the child, that you dearly love, and would you begin, would this be a moment, God, would this be a marker, a, a change of direction, a moment where you just begin to work in their life? So God, this morning, we just offer ourselves to you, all that we know of you, and we say, God, we don't want to hide. We recognize we need each other. We need to listen to the Nathans in our life. That's what the church does. We, we need to be that to one another, and so God, be with us as we do that for one another. And would you, even now as we sing, God, would you just remind us of your love that just never stops pursuing us? In Jesus' name we pray, and everybody said, amen. You can stand up with us.